All right, turn to Hosea chapter 9. We have a two-part study tonight. Uh, well, not tonight, but it'll go on to next week. It is time to seek the Lord. It is time to seek the Lord. It comes right out of chapter 10. It is high noon, Paul said in Romans. It is high noon. It is high time. Salvation is closer than when we first believed. So wake up, he says, and let the Lord shine upon you and lift you up and resurrect you, and he will give you life. And he was talking to Christians. He was talking to Christians in the, in the church of Rome that we needed to realize the time and the seasons in which we live, but the salvation that was given to us, it's also in part something that is coming, something that is future yet. And which is what we talked about, salvation being past, present, and future, uh, as we say, you know, justification, the sanctification process, and the glorification, being with our Lord. That's what Paul was referring to. Salvation is nearer than when we first believed. I thought I had it already. It's something you have, but it's something that's also coming. If you had it, why is it getting near? That's what Paul was talking about. It's getting near. It's coming. Salvation, deliverance. The Lord is coming. It's time to seek the Lord. For the people of Israel, they were listening to Hosea, and he's one of the 12. Jesus had his 12, right? But the Bible, the Old Testament, has his 12, and those are the minor prophets, the 12. And Hosea kicks him off. He's the first one of the 12. And he is a voice in a very, very difficult time. You might relate to Hosea. In a very difficult time because sin had become so habitual to the people of God. Sin at this time had become so habitual, it, nobody batted an eye to it. Idolatry, immorality, drunkenness, promiscuity, violence, and ignorance of the word of God was common to the time of Hosea. And it all plagued Israel, and Hosea was the voice. He was probably a very nagging voice to the people. He's probably not well-liked. Neither was any prophet well-liked. Who wants to have that job? Who wants to have a job that you know most people are not going to like you? But if God called you, you need to do it. And that's what God says to Hosea. He, um, I'm not going to go over the whole story, but the, the aspect of Hosea and how he comes into the ministry. He marries a immoral woman, a prostitute, Gomer. And through that relationship, which God tells him, go marry her, bring her, love her, have relationship with her, have children with her. One's going to be yours. The other two are questionable. And when she goes around and goes around with other men, you love her and bring her back. And the pain of infidelity that Hosea felt, because this is a real book, a real character, a real person, the pain of infidelity it's something that Hosea had experienced. Why? Because through that experience of loving someone so deep and yet being rejected and that person going around with other people and being unfaithful to the marriage relationship is how God felt toward his people. Hosea was representing the character and the heart of God. And Gomer was representing the heart of the people of Israel. Unfaithful. And 
the pain of infidelity was so deep in Hosea, we can't dismiss that part. We think of Hosea, a very strong man, a very godly man. We're told that in the Bible. Um, but any godly man, any, any person would feel the pain of, of somebody that was unfaithful to you. Once Hosea felt the pain and he understood the circumstances, he had his message. God says, okay, now you can preach. Now you can go and preach because that's how I feel. I want my people back. And you feel the, the heart of the Lord in this book. It's not so much theology, doctrine is important, but it's more the passion, the love, the desire, for God, uh, the desire that God has for his people. Tremendous. But the problem wasn't just the pain of infidelity. It was the failure of the leaders. And we cannot point to our government when we read Hosea. That's one of the big mistakes that hermeneutically we would do with Old Testament prophets. We try to apply it to the nation. In part, in practical terms, it will apply to the nation in terms of sin and immorality and injustice and human oppression that governments do. But it first has to start with the church. It's written to the people of God. And as New Testament believers, we're told by Paul, when we look back at the Old Testament, it was not written to us, but it was written for us. Amen. It was written for us. What's the reason? Why was it written for us? What does Paul say? Does anyone know? Admonition. That we might have hope. That we might not repeat the same mistakes that they did. And that we would know that God is a holy God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same God that we worship today. It's the same God that was with Hosea in his home with a broken heart, in his home with a broken life, but a man who recovered because of God's grace, and he lifted him up to preach and to have a message. And you might have a message. No matter what you've gone through, you have a message that God wants to use. We might feel like, man, I'm such a mess. My life's such a mess. God can use it. Look at this man. God used a tremendous uh, he gave him a tremendous message despite a de very difficult circumstance. But the problem was the leaders. We would go to the leaders of the church. Next week, ah, I wish I would have brought it today, but next week I'll have a video on Todd White. On Todd White. And um, one of the most famous preachers around, um, he spoke not too far from here, down in Fontana a couple weeks ago. And... Um, he is full-blown ecumenical. He is full-blown into Roman Catholicism to the core. And, um, and yet, he's propagated as one of the leading voices. And uh, um, he's done some awful things, too, terrible things to people. That um, Long story. But anyway, we'll talk about that another time, next week. But there was also the idolatry of power by the people. The leaders craved the power, and they sought to have more power by aligning themselves with other nations instead of trusting the Lord. The psalmist said, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. No, 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 they said. Our help comes from Egypt and from Assyria, and they're going to protect us. And God says, you go to them, you're going to reap the whirlwind. They're going to come, and they're going to destroy you. Those who you thought was gonna help, were going to help you are going to be your destroyers. And God allowed that to happen because the people wanted it, the abuse of power. But furthermore, there was a corruption of worship. Nothing bad's going to happen to us. We still have the sacrifices. We still have our God. We still do things in the name of the Lord. 
And hey, we, we have two places of worship, one in the south and one in the north, Bethel and Dan. Well, they have the golden calves. Nothing bad's going to happen because they're our gods and they're our protectors. And yet, so convinced that this was God uh, and doing things for God and doing absolutely everything possible to worship God, they thought by naming him, the right, by naming him God, by naming those calves God, that they were going to escape trouble. In fact, is what caused the problem, is what brought the judgment. And so uh, when, when somebody backslides, a backslider, it's somebody who loses all capacity to reason and understand the scriptures and does all kinds of erratic things. They don't really make sense why they're doing it. But in their eyes and minds and in reality, they, they're thinking that they're, the, they're doing absolutely true, even though they may be violating everything God says. But we have the failure of the priest. The failure of the kings. Uh, it says in Hosea that they made kings. They had kings, but not through me, says the Lord. I didn't put them there. I, you set them up. I didn't know them. Six kings, the last 30 years of Israel's history. Six kings, five murdered over a 30-year period. Well, we're just going to get that right king one day. We know we're going to get it right king. And one after the other, they kept falling. And tonight we're going to read about the failure of the prophets, the failure of the prophets, because ultimately the prophets were the ones who had to stand as watchmen for the nation and say, trouble's ahead, we need to repent. But they were telling the people, it's okay. Life is good. The Lord is so good. He's so merciful. Everything's fine. Don't need Keep doing what you're doing. God will never judge this place. You're his people. And they led them the wrong way. In fact, you can know a false prophet from a true prophet in that way. A true prophet would always give people the true word of God, whether people like it or not. A false prophet would always pat people on the back and tell them how wonderful they are and tell them that they're great. They don't have to do anything. They're doing already all the right things. But a true prophet actually has to have the guts to tell people what they don't want to hear. And trust God for the result. And I think this is something pastors go through all the time. Speaking for myself, speaking for other pastors, right? The idea is to be tempted to tell people what they want to hear because you want them back the next week. You want them to come back. You want them to hear. And you want to massage it enough, just enough to bring them back instead of giving them what God wants to tell them. And it's sort of a temptation in a lot of ways for people that preach the gospel, people that teach God's word. But the reminder that they were married to God. They were married to God. The Jewish people were married to the Lord. They were God's bride. He married, he married them in um, Sinai, at the Mount Sinai. He married them, um, which kind of lets us know that God also has the bride of Christ, which is the church. So in, in a very real way, when we see the relationship with God in Israel, because Paul told us this is for our admonition and our understanding, we need to look at a reflection of our relationship with Jesus. How did they deal with their relationship with God? How are we doing with our relationship with Jesus? It goes both ways. And so you see Hosea gives us this, the, the, the two pictures. One, the, the, the reality of what happened, but the application of how we doing with our Lord, how we doing with our relationship with Jesus day in and day out. But let's read the first six verses of chapter uh, nine. 
Do not rejoice of Israel with exultation like the nations, for, the, for you have played the harlot, forsaking your God. You have loved harlots, earnings on every threshing floor. Threshing floor and the wine press will not feed them, and the new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will go and return to Egypt. And Assyria will eat unclean food, and in Assyria they will eat unclean food. They will not pour out libations of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not please him. Their bread will be like mourn's, mourner's bread. All who eat it will be defiled, for their bread will be for themselves alone. I will not enter the house of the Lord. It will not enter the house of the Lord. What you will do, what will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they will go because of destruction. Egypt will gather them up. Memphis will bury them. Weeds will take over their treasures of silver. Thorns will be in their tents. Now, this chapter, you would wonder, why is it in the Bible? Because it's quite a direct pointed attack on the sin of Israel. And people wonder, this is one of the toughest chapters you'll ever read. It's true. It's one of the toughest chapters you'll read, but it has a tremendous comforting message uh, together with the book, but also with chapter 10. Because the point of these two chapters, 9 and 10, is it's time to seek the Lord. There's still a chance. There's still hope. Despite your sins, God is going to bring the judgment but he doesn't have to bring it on you. That's the point. He doesn't have to bring it on you. Yes, people are going to disobey the Lord. Yes, people are going to go away from Christ. Yes, that's going to happen. But it doesn't have to be you. It is time to seek the Lord, God says. It is time to seek the Lord with all your heart and break up that ground in your heart that's so hardened by sin and by idolatry and immorality. It's time to break it up by the plow of the gospel, by the plow of God's word. Break it up and let God Bring down his reign of righteousness upon you. If you just turn, he will completely open up his righteousness to you. So beautiful, the Lord works, how the Lord works. But they needed to remain faithful, but they weren't. Adultery under the canopy. Mount Sinai, Moses was up there, and down, down, the, down the hill they were worshiping the golden calf. They were saying, this is the gods who brought us out of Egypt. And there was unfaithfulness. It says in 2 Timothy, even if we're faithless, God remains faithful. God remains faithful. If we deny him, he will deny us, it says. If we confess him, he will confess us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. I think it's taken right out of Hosea, in my opinion, second, that part of 2 Timothy. Why? Because you cannot read this book without thinking, why is God so patient and faithful to these unfaithful people? How can it be so nice to them? Well, I like God to be nice to me. I want God to be patient with me. And in my sin and in my stubbornness, I like God to be patient with me. I may not like God, you know, I may not like that God's patient with you and patient with other people. Uh, that's just the way we think, right? <laughs> Especially if they've done something against us. Um, man, how can that, why doesn't God move in and deal with them? God is patient, and he's faithful. And as far and as bad as Israel got, God always gave them an open door to come back. So 
There's always a way to come back. However, most of them did not take it. Most of them, that generation, were judged by Assyria, unfortunately. But it wasn't because God did not want them to. Uh, it wasn't because God just wanted them to judge them. He wanted them to come out of it. And he waited, and he waited. God cannot let him, could not let Israel go, despite their unfaithfulness. They were unfaithful because of Baal. They were unfaithful because of different gods like Ashtoreth, but Baal is the main one. And if you remember in the studies that we did in the earlier part, God's love, and this, in this book, God's love is tremendous. You see it. It's passionate. It's amazing. Uh, but if you read it, you come to a conclusion. God's love cannot get, cannot, um, how would I put it? He cannot take people off the hook. God's love cannot let you off, we would say. That means that if you're rebellious against God, God will deal with you. That's one of the things we understand from God's word in Hosea. His love is so great, he can't let you off. He can't just say, well, whatever, just keep going, it's okay. He will deal with us. But if you keep reading, you'll realize that God's love will not let you go. He will pursue you. He will pursue you. He will pursue you. He will pursue you. And if you trust him, God's love will not let you down. He will not let you down. That's how much he cares and he loves. But because he loves, he cannot let people off the hook just by, like that. He has to deal with them. In fact, I'm going to read chapter 14 very quickly. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but it's okay. We'll read this when we get there. It's a beautiful chapter. I can't wait there. can't wait to get there. Chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away my iniquity. By the way, this is the way you should read it because it's very passionate. You know, it's not, well, take away my iniquity. What does that even mean? You know, sound it out, act it out. It's meant to be like that. I wish, you know, we all knew the, we all knew the, the original language, but it's meant to be passionate. And receive us graciously. That's what God wants to hear. Did you know that? Take away all of my iniquity and receive us graciously. Most people want God to take them off their problems. But most people don't want God to deal with their root of the problem, which is their sin. You know, it's, it's that, you know, we go into a prayer meeting. Oh, Lord, I got this problem. I got that problem. And we realize, wait a minute, how'd you get into that problem? Well, you know, whatever. Like, this is what I do. Well, why don't we pray for that? Because that seems to be the real root of the issue. And most people only pray when they get in trouble or they, you know, they want God to get them off the hook. God wants to hear, Lord, just take away my iniquity. This is my problem. My iniquity is my problem. That we may present the fruit of our lips, Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. For in thee, the orphans find mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lilies, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout, and his beauty will be like the olive tree, like the fragrance of the cedars of Lebanon. O oh, Ephraim, verse 8, what more, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look, and, and, and it is I who answer and look after you. 
I'm like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. Now listen to how it ends. This is how it, we're going to get there, but this is a little bit preview. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever's discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them. But the sinner will stumble in them. And that's how the book ends. So we're done, right? Everybody go home? No, got a few more chapters to go. But that's how it ends. It's a recognition of their sin and for God to restore them. And God says, look, if you return to me, I will bless you. I will restore you. I will make you safe in your land. And whoever hears, give heed to it. It's almost like what Jesus said, whoever has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. The righteous will walk in the ways of the Lord, but the sinner will stumble in them. And this is a sad thing, but the relationship that God wanted with Israel was of a marriage, but they were unfaithful. And so the relationship that we need to have with the Lord is the same. It's a marital relationship with Jesus. The bride of Christ is the church. We make up the bride of Christ. We have a covenant relationship with the Lord, a new covenant relationship with the Lord. They had a covenant relationship with the Lord, but they broke it. Uh, but it's the same loyalty and faithfulness that's required in marriage that is required to walk with the Lord. It's the same. Same faithfulness, same commitment, same loyalty, right? In fact, that's how God expresses the word grace in the Old Testament. It's not just, you know, a feel-good thing that you get. You know, God gives you grace and you feel good about it. No, it's, the idea is loyalty. God gives you loyalty. He says to you, I'll be faithful to you. And he wants you to tell him, I'll be faithful to you, Lord. Just help me to be faithful. Because I know me. I know how I am. I know my wanderings, Lord. Keep me faithful. And God says, I will do that. And that's the relationship. That's how it goes. It's a, it's, it's, it's a marriage type of relationship. It's a commitment. Now, Israel was not loyal to God. You see the first two verses. They had this threshing floors. They were forsaking the Lord and Playing the harlot, which means that they were going out with other gods. You know, imagine just an unfaithful relationship, an unfaithful person in their marriage going around. This is what Israel was doing, and this was the target. And they were in the threshing floor of the wine press, and the new wine, verse 2, will fail them. So we're in the threshing floor, and this is, has some explanation. You have to think of it like this. The, the cold prostitution that they were involved in, so... Ashtoreth, Baal, they did, um, they worshiped them for one specific reason, economically. They needed a good harvest. So in order to get money, in order to have food, in order to have grain, you needed to please the gods. And God told Israel, when you come into the land, you don't have nothing to worry about. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to bring the rain. I'm going to make the seeds grow. I'm going to bring the grapes. I'm going to bring the vineyards. You didn't even have to plant the vineyards. They were already there. The land of milk and honey. But God says, if you're unfaithful, I'm going to shut up the heavens, and they'll become like bronze, and they're not going to rain. See, economically in Israel, they were dependent on God. If God brought the rain, they were good. They were faithful. It was a land of plenty, milk and honey. It wasn't just sticky. It was just supposed to be this plentiful land. But if they were unfaithful, they would have nothing. 
Yeah, they couldn't just bring a glacier or anything like that. They just had to trust in God. It was based on their faithfulness to God. Well, when you bring other gods involved, then you don't need God. Just pray to them. They're a lot more flexible. See, they let you get away with things. These other gods, they, come on, they don't really care how you live. Oh, God cares how you live. But these other gods, they don't care how you live. You just do whatever you want and just bring an offering. And the rain's going to come and the plentiful food's going to come. But God says, it's not going to happen anymore. Your threshing floor, where you, you, know, you separate the chaff from the wheat and the wine press, where you get the, the, the wine, the new wine from the grapes, will not feed them. The new wine will fail them. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to work. The problem with them is they were looking to these gods. Now, how does it apply to us? Now, think about this very carefully because this is where people get lost. And they go, well, I don't have any worries about fertility colds. I'm not going to go and worship Ashtoreth tonight or Baal or you know, go into this fertility rite. What are Christians warned about the most in the New Testament? What's the love that we have to be careful with? Anybody know? Love of the world. You got it. It's the love of the world, which would include money for sure. Do not love the world. In fact, it is replete in the New Testament. Don't love the world. Be careful of the world. Don't be conformed to this world. On and on and on and on. Jesus said, the world's going to give you something. I'll give you something better. They'll give you peace. I'll give you my peace. Don't, do, don't go by the way of the world. Watch out for the world. Watch out for Demas. He went for the pleasures of this world. He couldn't walk with the Lord, it says in, in, the, in the book of Timothy. The world, the world, the world, the world. That's the warning for Christians. It's not asterisk or fertility cults and things like that. It surely could involve in it. But what is it about the world that really God's warning us about? It's the values of the world. The values of the world. What are God's values and character? What are the world's values and characters? And which one do you mirror the most? James says in chapter 2 of James, he says, you adulteresses, you adulteresses, to the church, to the body of Christ, he says, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And you can be friends of the world and friends with God at the same time. If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. If you're an enemy of God, you're friends with the world. But if you're a friend of God, that means you're an enemy of the world. You can't have it both ways, is what James is saying. But if, if you are already doing that, James says you're an adulteress. Same thing as Hosea. You're going to a different God, a different system, a different value system. And of course, the idea here, the most uh, penetrating thought of the world is this. What is the number one thing the world is faithful to? What is the number one thing the world's faithful to? We read it in the book of James. It was, it's the epitome of worldliness. Faithfulness to self. Faithfulness to self. The world is faithful to self. Make sure somebody, make sure you take care of you. Make sure you take care of that need. Make sure you're, you know, at the end of the day, Make sure you get yours. That's what the world says. That's the number one rule in the world. Loyalty to self above everything, right? At the end of the day, you need to be faithful to this, the world says. Unfortunately, that mindset, that idea creeps into the Christian church, and Christians begin to think, well, it's all about me. 
I'm going to have to take care of me. I'm going to have to do me. I'm going to have to take care of my me. Because who else is going to do it? Well, Jesus said, I know I'll tell you what to do with yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Deny yourself. You follow me. I'll take care of those things. You follow me. You make sure you're following me. And all these things shall be added unto you. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But that's going to be our biggest temptation of the world. It's the self. The self, the self, the self. Number one religion in America, selfism. Right? Everybody is into selfism. And if we're not careful, we'll end up there. Selfism. Right? What's in it for me? Why should I go to church? Why? People go to church because of me. Not because of me, but because of you, because of yourself. What am I going to get out of it today? Right? And we think like that. We don't even notice sometimes. What am I getting out of this relationship? Don't you? you know, maybe when you were in the world, you thought like that. I certainly did. What am I getting out of this relationship? What am I getting out of this marriage? Nothing but Jesus. That's what you need to say. He'll add it on to you. Don't worry about it. But see, we're so preoccupied with the self being taken care of. And Jesus says, I'll take care of the self. You deny yourself. You pick up your cross. You follow me. All these things will be taken care of. But that's the temptation of Christians to mimic the world, to mimic the value system of literally the word cosmos, the way things are in order, the world, how things are. But they were flirting with other gods and they were flirting with other nations. Verse 3, it says that they will go back to Egypt. They'll become their oppressor. There were two major powers in the, at the time of Hosea, Assyria and Egypt, duking it out. Israel was in the middle. And we're told that they were like a silly dove. They were like a trap dove and they would go to Assyria and they would go to Egypt and they couldn't figure out which one to go with. And they were making deals on both sides just to make sure that they were okay. And uh, it got to the point where they said, well, you know, we made deals on both sides. We're safe. I mean, who's going to harm us? We made deals with those guys. And they're the ones who came. In fact, we're told that Assyria is like a bird of prey. It's like a bird of prey. Where'd it go? It's like a bird of prey. There it is. It's like a bird of prey coming. That little thing, the little dot when you go hunting, it's like, what is that? Is that a bird? And it's this gigantic eagle coming, literally a vulture here. Assyria is like a vulture coming to get you. That which thought that you were going to be safe, they were going to protect you, oh, they are going to come and destroy you, Israel. God warned them this was going to happen. Before it happened, God told them, if you go to Assyria, this is going to happen to you. Because when you go to Assyria and you make a deal with their king, their king represents their God. Okay, this is how you have to look at kings in the Bible. Don't think of kings like King Arthur or the political kings of today. The kings had to have a close relationship with God. David did. Solomon should have. But the kings were supposed to have this one relationship with God, to be after, a man after God's own heart. The kings were supposed to have that. Same thing on the other side. The, the pagan kings had their faithfulness to their God. So when you align yourself with the king of Assyria, he's aligned with his God, Ashur, and that God... And his influence is going to come into your life when you align yourself with that. And that's what they did. And that's what happened to Israel. They went further and further into idolatry. The, the sacrifice will not be there. Verse 5. Look what's going to happen to the religious system. 
The religious system is this. This is the religious system. A calf in the south, a calf in the north. Bethel, Dan. By the way, they said, this is Yahweh. They said, this is Yahweh. This is God. This is our God. And I told you last time, how can, the, how can somebody think of that? That's actually God. That's actually, this is God. Well, I, I kind of made the representation. Think of people caught in the Roman Catholic Church. All the saints, all the statues, all the scapulas, all the stuff. And they say, this is God. They're sincere. This is God. It had nothing to do with God. Had absolutely nothing to do with God. But they say, this is God. They're absolutely convinced that that's God. Or part of God. Or something to get to God. Well, they thought the same thing. It doesn't see the huge difference, right? You think, how in the world did they get there? But you see it today. People think that that's God. People think that that's going to get them closer to God. But eventually, those festivals, nothing's going to happen. It says, for behold, they will, be, they will go because of destruction. Egypt will gather them up, um, their festivals and their worship. Memphis, which is a city in Egypt, will bury them. Weeds will take over their treasures of silver. Thorns will be like tents. Thorns will be in their tents. And nothing's good's going to come out of it. God will use those festivals that they had, those worship festivals, and he's going to use them to destroy them because they were using them to worship God, but that, not really God. They were worshiping idols. Um, God says, those things are going to crush you. You flirt with the world, you're going to get the world. And this is a great reminder to believers. You flirt with the world, you're going to get the world. You stay close to God, you're going to get all of God. But you go to the world, don't expect these wonderful things to happen. And I think sometimes that's the deception. We, we think that if we just align ourselves with, well, you know, I can kind of go both ways. Like, I can still come to church and have a relationship with God, but still do these other things, all these worldly activities and selfism and all this stuff. And you think, oh, man, I can do both sides. I think that's going to happen. God says, look, those things are going to destroy you. They're going to destroy you. Get out of there. Second point, verse 7. Not only did they, they had this idea that religion was going to save them, but they also had this idea that the punishment that was coming, that they were never going to be exposed to it. They were never going to go through judgment. It says, the days of punishments have come. The, day of, the, days, the days of retribution have come. Let Israel know this. The prophet is a fool. The, literally, the spiritual man is demented. He's crazy. Because of the grossness of their iniquity and because your hostility is so great. Now, this is something interesting. A new sin is mentioned that we haven't mentioned before, the prophets. The prophets. The prophets were the watchmen for the people. By the way, a prophet is always for the church, not for the unbelieving world. In New Testament terms, God will raise up a prophet for the church, not for the world. Sometimes we get that mistakenly, uh, mistaken, and I hear that sometimes, like, Pray that God will raise up a prophet to the U.S. and a prophet for Australia. If God's going to raise up a prophet, it will be for the church. Evangelists are for the world. 
prophets are for the church to get them back in track, get them back on track. The prophets that they had, it says they were fools. God calls them a fool. And the spiritual man is demented because of the grossness of their iniquity. So a prophet that's supposed to speak in God's name are fools, he says. Not only did Israel persecute the good prophets, but they listened to the false prophets. It says in Jeremiah, and I, I can't remember the chapter in Jeremiah. I was trying to look it up today, and I couldn't. I ran out of time. Where they actually drew a letter. They drafted a letter where it said that Nehemiah, uh, Jer, uh, Jeremiah had to be bound and had to be in prison. They actually drew up a letter to take Jeremiah out of the streets and into uh, close confinement, to put him in prison. Why? Because they called him a fool. They said Jeremiah was a fool. That he was saying that Judah was going to be destroyed. That Babylon was coming. No, it's not going to happen. Come on. Look at all these other guys. They're saying the opposite, Jeremiah. Get in with the program. Don't you know that you need to say the right things? And Jeremiah wasn't saying the right things to the people. He was surely was saying the right things, but not what they wanted to hear. Hosea was saying the right things, but they were listening to the fools, it says. They were listening to fools. What were the fools saying? Well, they were saying, this is okay. This is actually an archaeological. I showed it to you many, many times. Archaeological digging in Dan. This is where they had the golden calf in Dan. This is what the priests were doing. It's all good. And if the priests did it, it's all good for everybody. We all need to do it. And they did it. But unfortunately, the days of punishments have come. The watchman was supposed to be one who warned them, like Ezekiel. If you see danger coming, you need to speak up. You need to say something. The prophets were saying, everything is fine. No need to change course. Everything isn't good. God has a wonderful plan for your life. You don't have to worry about anything. God will never, never, ever, ever bring judgment upon his own people. Can you imagine that? How dare bring his judgment against his own people? That's a terrible God. That's a horrible God. And people go, uh-huh, uh-huh, that's right. God will never do that. Can you make it? God will never do that. No, God will never do that. God will never do that. They came to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, you brood of vipers. To the, to the Sanhedrin, to the people, the, the Pharisees, to the priests. You brood of vipers. Who warned you of the judgment to come? Why are you here? Who warned you about it? And they began to argue with John the Baptist, and they said, we're the children of Abraham. We're children of God. John the Baptist says, really? God can raise up these stones right here, and he can call them children of God. Don't think you're going to escape. Who told you to escape? They were so confident in the fact that they were people of God. And nothing bad was going to happen to them. But Ezekiel knew better, didn't he? Ezekiel warned them. Jeremiah warned them. Hosea's warning them. Why? Because the failure of the prophets were so, was so bad in, that church, in, the, in the church in, in, uh, in Israel that instead of being watchmen, they became yes men. They became yes men. Oh, man. That's trouble. When the people that you count on the most to tell you the truth are just simply yes men. Sure, whatever you want. You want no judgment? Sure. 
You want everything to be all right? Sure. You want no repentance? Sure. You want no sin? Sure. Yes, man. Instead of watchmen. And did it turn out good for Israel? No. Nothing good ever comes out of false prophets. Nothing. Nothing ever good comes out. It says in verse 9, they have gone deep in depravity, as in the days of Gibeah. They will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sin. Now, if you know your Bible, this would have, you sort of would have gasped. <gasps> Gibeah. Oh, boy. I remember that place. Now, Gibeah is an interesting place. If you ever want to read something to your children in a sarcastic tone, read Judges 19 to 21 to them. That will put them to sleep very, very easily. Totally kidding. Don't do that. You probably never get them to hear another Bible story again. It is one of the toughest chapters, I would imagine, to ever read in the Bible. And it breaks your heart. When you read it, it's a shock, but it breaks your heart. These are the people of God. What happened in Gibeah in Judges 19 to 21 is one of the most shocking things in the whole Bible. Murder. Various sexual sins, civil war, the destruction of nearly an entire tribe of Israel, the Benjamites, godlessness, unashamed immorality, all in Gibeah, Judges 19 to 21. A Levite goes with a prostitute. She's got a, she's got a nice girl. She's got a good wife. She's got a hot wife. And he takes her. And they go visit her town. Well, she leaves him, and then he finds her, and then he goes back to her town, and then they're going around, and they're like, hey, we should stay at the Jebusites. And they stay, yeah, it's all right, we just keep going. We're not going to stay with the Jebusites. They're pagans anyway. We're going to stay with the people of God, Gibeah. Just keep walking further down. And they get to Gibeah, and all hell breaks loose. They destroy, they rape, they cause all kinds of immoral things, and they nearly... Um, Cause because of that sin, the destruction of one, uh, the tribe of Benjamin was nearly wiped out because of that sin. Israel was a lost nation in Judges. It was completely gone. Hosea says, that's who you are. And, and that would have resonated deep within the hearts of the people. Would have gone, whoa, we're not that bad, are we? God says you are. You're like Gibeah. A terrible nation, a, a terrible time when judgment eventually came to that area. Israel, and remember that the, this is a rendition. They take the prostitute and they chop her up. They chop up, you know, part of her body and then they take it and they send it to the different tribes. No? Does anybody remember that? I'm absolutely crazy. Okay, you remember that. Okay, good. They're like, is that in the Bible? Really? Yes, it is. And it's a shame. It's, it's horrible. Do you know why it's there? to let us know how even a people of God can descend into such immorality and such unashamed iniquity that only the grace of God can rescue them. I'm glad the book of Judges continues, and then we get Samuel, and then we get David, because those were dark times in the book of Judges. But you know what? It didn't last long, because after David, then Solomon just slid right into more iniquity and immorality and all the kings and the split. And now you get this. Verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. Now, this is the idea here. Luscious, if you like grapes, these are fantastic. Grapes from Israel. I've, I've had dried grapes from Israel. I never had like 
true grapes from Israel, but I heard they're really good. You got to ask Grant. <laughs> but this is the idea. The idea is you're in the desert. It's hot. It is completely isolated. And you run into a vineyard. And this is not uncommon in Israel. And then there's this beautiful, luscious grapes there. And you go, oh, praise the Lord. It's so good to eat after being out in the sun for that long. I found Israel like the grapes in the wilderness. God comes across the wilderness, and this is a very poetic. God finds Israel, and he delights in Israel. He delights in it like a man being in the wilderness finding grapes. That's a big delight. And I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season, but they came to Baal Peor. Now, the idea, of course, is in the Old Testament, Israel was the, the vineyard. It was the vineyard that God had planted, and he gave it to the workers. And the fruit was to be for the owner of the vineyard, which was God. But the owners of the vineyard said, ha ha, we're going to keep it for ourselves. That's Isaiah chapter 5. Jesus takes that same parable and he says, um, yeah, you know that vineyard in the Old Testament? That's my father's vineyard. And you guys, the, the, it's the spiritual leaders, you guys are keeping it for yourself. The fruit was for God, but you're keeping it for yourself. And they said in the, in the parable, Jesus, Jesus says that God or the owner sent them prophets, sent them servants, and they killed them all. And they finally said, ah, oh, this is their son. God sends a son. The owner sends a son. And they said, oh, that's the son. Let's kill him so that we can own the vineyard. And Jesus said, that's what's going to happen between me and you. You're going to kill me. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone not knowing that this was the plan of God, but they wanted to keep it for themselves. The fruit was for God, but they wanted it for themselves. And God says, I wanted you like, like fruit. I wanted the fruit for me. It's a delight. But they came to Balpeor and devoted themselves to shame, and they came detestable as to which they love. What is Balpeor? Well, we got to hurry because we got to finish. Belpior, uh, another tragic story. These are, I mean, when you read Hosea, it's good that when you read it, Go and go back and read exactly what happened. What Hosea is alluding to is the tragedies of Israel. In Belpior, this is one of the most tragic things. They're about to enter the promised land. You see how close it is to the promised land? They're right there. I got a closer view. They're right there. They had to go around the Amorites and the Moabites, and they had to come around up on the other side over the Dead Sea. Right? Belpior is, is it a little closer? Right there. So right above the Dead Sea, right by the Jordan River, right about to enter, they could have had the promised land. And the Bible says that a man named Balaam set a trap for them. And Balaam sent some good-looking girls down at their camp, and the guys just could not resist. They were not very faithful to God, and they went headlong into immorality with the women from Moab. Now, what you have to remember is in order to worship the God of Moab, you had to enter into this sexual union with the Moabite women, like sexual priestesses, in a sense. In order to worship these gods, you had to enter into a, a sexual relationship. That's how you worship the gods of the Canaanites. That's how you worship the, God, uh, the gods of Egypt, the gods of Rome, the gods of Greece. You enter in a sexual relationship with them. And God says, okay, that's enough. And 24,000 people died because of the curse that they brought upon Israel that day at Baal Peor. By the way, 
not to be in any way weird or anything like that, but it's a sexual thing. The word bel, pior, is a sexual thing. Uh, it literally means the Lord of the opening, the Lord of the opening. Any cavities in your body was open to sexual activity. And so they were completely immersed in all kinds of homosexuality, immorality, copulation with anything that had an opening. And they called it the Lord, Baal, the Lord or husband, Peor, the opening. And so people today still worship that. They don't know it, but they still worship it. They're so addicted to promiscuity and immorality. And yet the people of God fell right into it. Ride by Bel Peor. And Hosea says, God wanted you to be his own special people, but you became like the ones in Bel Peor. These are indictments. Verse 11, we'll finish off. As for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Um, Though they bring up their children, I will bereave them until not a man is left. Yes, woe to them indeed when I depart from them. Ephraim I have seen is planted as a pleasant meadow like Tyre, but Ephraim will bring, about, will bring out his children for slaughter. This is very difficult to even imagine this. But God is, um, the, the word Ephraim, is, it's, a, it's, a known, it's a word for Israel. It's basically the same thing as Israel. Uh, it, the, the name of a tribe took on the name of the kingdom, Israel. And during this time, they thought fertility cults, all the rights that we do, we're going to have children, we're going to have good harvests, we're going to have all these great things. And God says, you're not going to have them. Assyria is going to come. And uh, women that are going to have children, they're not going to have them. No conception. And if they do have children, uh, they're going to be killed when the Assyrians come. This is why it's like, ugh. This is a tough verse. Yes, it is. Because God wanted him to be like Tyre. Look at verse 13. Tyre was this beautiful city off the coast of the Mediterranean. He says, I wanted you to be like Tyre, like a pleasant meadow. But when the Assyrians come, you're going to bring out your kids, and they're going to be prepared for the slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will, the, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and a dry breast. All their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princesses are rebels. Ephraim stricken to the root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Even though they were bell children, I will slay the precious ones off their womb. My God will cast them away because they have not listened to him and they will be wanderers among the nations. He mentions Gilgal. And Gilgal was one of these places where you go, what What good, I mean, what bad happened in Gilgal? You know, the answer is, all of Israel's history, there was great things that happened in Gilgal. Gilgal was like the place to be. Not only was the place where they went into the land, it's the first place they went into the land, they had a wonderful uh, entering to the land with Joshua. They had the first Passover there in the land. Wonderful memories. In fact, that's where uh, Saul was crowned and David was welcomed back from exile. It was all in Gilgal. But Gilgal had become now a place of wickedness, idolatry, and immorality. All the sins were found there. 
It's like a, the way I would describe it, and hopefully not too gross, is like a big boil in, 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 in someone. There's a big boil and then it burst. And it just, all the yucky stuff all over your leg or all over your back or whatever, you know, sorry. And, uh, but it was like this, this, this was this crescendo. It was just like, it's going, it's going, it's going. And it finally burst. All the sin and immorality just flows into the land. And God says, that's it. We're done. And you would think, is God truly over with them? They're, instead of being married to God, he's actually going to break relationship with them. Uh, look what verse 17 says. My God will cast them away because they have not listened to him. There'll be wonders among the nations. Completely gone. Judgment was going to come. God, judgment was going to come. It says in, in, in Hosea that God will remember their sin. God will remember their sin. And surely this nation, the nation of Israel, God did bring the judgment. This is one of the toughest things to remember. The judgment of God upon Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, it, was a it was a true event. It did happen. Assyria destroyed the nations. Ten tribes were never to be heard of again until 1948 when they came back truly as a land, as a one people, not two, but one. The kingdom of uh, David and Solomon split, and they were, the ten tribes were destroyed. The two tribes remained for a while, but eventually the judgment of God fell on both southern kingdom and northern kingdom. And God says, I will remember their sin, their iniquity. I will punish them. And you go, what am I going to learn from this text? <laughs> because it's, it's really just a sobering thought about God's dealing with his people. But I remind you of one thing. In the same Old Testament, when God says he will remember their sins, in Jeremiah, a couple hundred years later, we're told that he told the children of Israel, the, uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, he told them there's a new covenant. And in that new covenant, even though you have sinned, I will remember their sin no more, he says. Jeremiah 31. I will forgive them. And there'll be no need to tell somebody, know the Lord, because everyone will know the Lord personally. This is the promise of the new covenant. And when we look at things like that, you go, what brought the judgment of God upon this people? Simple answer, disobedience. Disobedience. Disobedience was the key, the hinge that brought the judgment of God. Not just disobedience, but indifference. God forgave them a lot of things. Their morality, their idolatry, their iniquity. But when they fell into this indifference, we don't care that God knows we don't care that God knows because he's not going to do anything about it. And they fell into this godless thinking that God doesn't care and God won't do anything about it. When they reach that indifference, God says, enough is enough because you're not going to come back. You're not going to repent now. You're, you're continuing headlong into your sin. But I'm going to make a covenant, not necessarily for the whole nation to come back, but everyone will know the Lord personally, meaning that it's individually now. An individual can have a relationship with God and escape the judgment of God. 
And God brings up this beautiful picture, and it's the word hesed. We talked about it in our first study. The word hesed, grace, mercy, unmerited flavor from God, but more than anything, loyalty, commitment is what God brings to his people, that he's willing to bring them back despite their sins. That it's not just about disobedience, because there's one thing we could say, well, as long as I don't do that, I'm okay with God. And sometimes people think the Bible is like that. As long as I don't do that, I'm okay. But isn't the Bible more than just not doing something? <laughs> when God says, don't lie, okay, that shall not lie, does it mean that as long as you don't lie, I'm all right. I'm not going to get the hammer if I don't lie. But isn't it more about God loves the truth and he wants you to speak the truth and he wants you to be committed to the truth, right? Isn't that ultimately what it means not to lie? Not just, I better not do it, but to say, no, I want to love the truth because God loves the truth. It's, it's not about don't steal, Better not steal, because I'm going to get the hammer. But it's, I want you to be gracious and generous and kind, right? It's not just about being avarice or greedy, but it's about being kind. It's about generous giving. See, this is what the Lord is showing them here. It's not just about, okay, as long as I don't do it, I'm okay with God. Don't do anything bad. <laughs> But God actually says, no, I'm teaching you the opposite of what not to do so that you can do the right things. You can do the mercy thing. You can do the gracious thing. God is not looking for the act only. You know, Lord, I helped the poor today. He's not looking just for the act. He's looking for the grace behind the act. Why did you do it? Why did you do that? Was there mercy behind it? Was there grace behind it, right? He's teaching us more than just don't do this. He's teaching us, learn from that. Don't do that. But opposite to that, do this. And that's where the grace of God comes. And then next time, it's part two. It's time to seek the Lord. Because once Israel knows this, and once people know this, there's only one thing to do. There's only one thing to do when you get to that point. Return to the Lord and seek him. Nothing else is going to get you out of it. There's no way you're going to get out of anything in the world. The world is bound for judgment. You're not going to get out of it. Only one thing will get you out of it. Return to the Lord. It's time to seek him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace tonight. Thank you for your mercy. It's tough, Lord, to read chapters like this and imagine how can we learn from it. What is the, 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 the purpose of this chapter being in there? And it almost shocks us into reality that, Lord, you don't tolerate sin, that you are a merciful and compassionate God, but, Lord, you are righteous and holy and will not tolerate sin. So, Lord, help us to love you and help us to fear you. Help us to know the reality of who you are, but the graciousness and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who on your behalf, Lord, you sent them to come and reveal God to us, reveal the love of the Father. Lord, I thank you that we have a new covenant now, that it's individually now, by faith and repentance, we can have, Lord, your gracious, merciful hands in our lives. 
thank you for your grace tonight. And we pray that we will learn so much from what Israel did and what they should have done and help not to become the pattern of our lives, that we would be a people called to walk worthy of the kingdom. In your name, Lord, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. <laughs>